Hello, urbanists. Parksify needs your support. As an independent podcast, Parksify depends on support from patrons. So if you're enjoying the Parksify podcast, consider signing up as a patron for as little as $1 a month. We have great perks including stickers and t-shirts, and all patrons receive access to our articles and early access to this podcast. To learn more and to sign up, just head over to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash Parksify. Thanks for your support. Hello, I'm Ash Blankenship, and this is the Parksify Podcast, where each week I talk with planners, urbanists, authors, and changemakers in our cities to discuss topics that impact our communities. Joining me on the show today is Walter Clapp, the founder and director of Community Adaptation LLC, which is working to bring biomimicry to cities, which is the practice of designing to emulate nature's strategies for efficiency. I speak with Walter about the challenges facing our power grid and about designing better cities through biomimicry. The way that we've been designing cities has been very uh, driven by looking at ourselves and our, our desire for power and not looking at biology in a broader sense and designing cities or social structures based on other systems that already work in nature. My conversation with Walter Clapp, all ahead on this week's episode of the Proxify podcast. All right, Walter, thanks so much for joining me on today's show. Thank you, Ash. Really happy to be here. Yeah, absolutely. So, Walter, you're the founder and director of Community Adaptation LLC, which is helping to solve the urban-rural divide and working to bring biomimicry to cities. So would you like to start us off by explaining your background and work? Absolutely. I started community adaptation in 2013. Um, So I've been going on about four years now. And we've gone through a couple different iterations. I came to this work because I actually was building a, um, a log cabin for my family in Montana, and I ended up wiring the house myself. And so I became intimately familiar with uh, electricity. I I am not an electrical engineer by trade, but sort of studied up on my own, uh, read a lot, watched quite a bit of uh, YouTube videos uh, with respect to uh, instruction on, on the fundamentals of electrical engineering and basically came to realize that the the electric grid of America is very, very vulnerable. It's probably the largest piece of technology in existence today. And its construction started uh, well over 100 years ago. And it has continued, but there has not really been any leaps in technological advance for the electric grid. And as a result, it has uh, remained quite vulnerable to, you know, to tree limbs all the way up to uh, solar storms. And I originally came to the idea of, uh, of community adaptation in, in that our, our individualism within America has led us to be somewhat fractured. And so uh, in my life, I've, I've lived in some of the most rural places as well as some of the most dense urban environments in the world. And seeing the dichotomy between you know, the way that 
people acknowledge each other or know each other um, troubled me. And if you go into um, you know an apartment building in Manhattan, uh, when I visit my friends there, for instance, you find that people don't know their neighbors. They don't have uh, time to get to know their neighbors. And in some ways, that that's very problematic because if the lights do go off like they did in Sandy uh, when the electric grid failed there, you know you you end up with this situation where people don't know uh, you know where's the the nearest doctor, where is the nearest electrician, who on my floor, you know knows how to um, you know fix A, B, or C. Mm-hmm. And so the the original iteration was really about helping connect people as. The work has progressed. I I actually went to law school. You know, went to law school in in D.C. to get a better understanding of the legal framework for how the electric grid was structured. What were the problems and challenges to creating this or updating this technology that spans our nation? And it turns out that there are immense jurisdictional problems. There are um, local regulations, there are state regulations, there are federal regulations, and finding a unified way of of updating uh, this piece of technology is is nearly impossible. You can't just send an update like you would to your iPhone or to a computer. Mm-hmm. It really takes hardware advances. And so I, I was working uh, in Congress. I I did some time on the Hill there. I worked for uh, some member organizations, and basically came to the conclusion that it, it seemed very unlikely that government was going to fix the problem of the electric grid. And uh, around the same time, so I'm in, I'm in law school and uh, realized that, that Elon Musk, you know, has this grand vision of going to Mars. And mm-hmm. uh, so me and some friends got together and decided, well, you know, Mars is like four years of travel away or, you know, six months. It's sort of our best uh, situation. And that's that's very similar to the way that the new world was structured. I mean, it was it was so distant that you really needed a new framework. And so we started talking about, you know, framing a new constitution for Mars. And these two ideas sort of merged for me. And I started thinking about, you know, what have have we designed society and and, and structured our governments and our in a way that is not kept up with advances in technology, and this sort of lines up with the the vast exodus from rural America into urban America, in into cities, and we still have in America in particular we still have this very um, interesting dichotomy between state and federal governments, and it seems like cities are really where all of the advances are happening. That's where all the innovation happens. And so so all these ideas sort of were converging and really started thinking about, well, if if this fundamental infrastructure of cities is getting getting re-envisioned, which it, it is today, um, there are companies all across America as well as the globe looking at reinventing the electric grid. And the the, the progress that they're making is deciding to decentralize these systems to being more distributed generation into what are called microgrids. And essentially the way you can think of a microgrid is that it is a, a self-similar version of the larger grid. So if you think of a, a tree, for instance, a if you take the branch of a tree, just looking at the branch, if you zoom out, it looks like the larger tree itself. And that really gets into this concept of um, of fractality, which is uh, has been popularized recently by uh, a book called Scale by Jeffrey West, mm-hmm. uh, a fascinating, fascinating book. I would 
argue as important uh, for the social sciences as on the origin of species um, mm. for, for the work that's going to be going forward. And so I graduated from from law school, you know, have all these ideas ruminating. I've, I've been bootstrapping this company, um, you know, for, for going on four years now. And the, the goals have changed a little bit. We have decided that we are going to focus on rebuilding or creating new cities that map onto the changes that are happening in the electric grid. Mm. And that means microgrids, we're, we're talking about micro cities, and they talk about nanogrids, we're talking about nano cities. And we believe that in doing this, you decentralize urbanism. You help move urbanism into rural America. And this obviously has implications for the political situation mm -hmm. that's going on uh, right now in America, the divide that we have. Mm -hmm. And you know, brain drain obviously is a huge problem in rural America. And we are trying to think of ways to help bridge that gap, to build uh, a bridge. And, you know, the, the one analogy that I often go back to is if you think about our electric grid or our global economic supply chain as a, as a piece of technology, to me, it, it's like the Titanic. It's a large, large ship that is self-sustaining. Um, and right now, our systems, our electric grid, and our global economic supply chain are not designed with lifeboats or very many lifeboats. And a, and a lifeboat is a self-similar version of a larger ship. It's just like the branch of a tree to a tree. And so the idea is, is working on making uh, cities sort of modular in that way, having within a city smaller units that are are beautiful and uh, you know actually much more uh, enjoyable and attractive and useful than, than a lifeboat. The analogy sort of breaks down at, at some level. But then even within the lifeboat, right, you have rafts, and then within the rafts you have uh, life jackets. And the idea is to make our, our systems self-similar, fractal, modular, distributed, and sort of bridging that that gap. And obviously, the, and I think the reason I'm here is uh, talking to you is because in doing that, you you decentralize urbanism in a way that allows people to reconnect with nature. Because mm -hmm. instead of having um, these exceptionally uh, sprawling, large, dense urban environments, you have very small, dense urban environments through which you can immediately exit and be in the middle of uh, the wilderness or uh, be in nature very, very quickly. You don't have to drive, you know, four hours to get uh, outside of the city. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Is that too part of um, Community Adaptation's Tiny Cities Project? Yeah, absolutely. So the, the Tiny Cities Project and, the, and um, the Tiny Cities Podcast is exploring this idea. Um, and what we're working on is bringing together a group of thought leaders to um, to actually work on construction of our first city. We are targeting um, small mountain towns uh, up and down the Rocky Mountains as a uh, pilot for this. And the idea is to demonstrate that we can build uh, a tiny city or a nano city or, or a string of these uh, and create these uh, dense but small urban environments that have um, particular population sizes that are sort of, uh, you know, the optimal size for a community uh, that allows you to have that dense urban environment, but also maintain um, the sense of wilderness uh, surrounding and sort of incorporated into uh, that city or tiny city. We'll return to my conversation with Walter Clapp in a moment, but first, 
For Parksify podcast listeners, Audible is offering a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial. Over 180,000 titles to choose from. I highly recommend Jeff Speck's Walkable City, How Downtown Can Save America, One Step at a Time. Speck discusses the benefits of walkability in our cities, a timely and thought-provoking book, and it's read by the author. You can download this or another book today for free by going to audibletrial.com slash parksify. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash parksify for your free audiobook. So, Walter, we've actually mentioned uh, biomimicry a few times. Can you explain what that is and how it impacts our cities? Absolutely. So, biomimicry is the study of biology to design new products, new technologies. So, you know, the Earth has been around for four and a half billion years. Uh, Humans have been evolving for, you know, since our our last divergence, you know, 20,000 years or so. Uh, plants, um, animals have all been evolving for for many, many uh, millions, if not billions of years. And there's some exceptional amounts of intelligence in the way that those things are designed. And, and in, you know, I, we don't have to get into the sort of philosophical distinction of like whether or not they were actually designed or, or it was by chance. But regardless, they do a very good job at surviving. And if you step back and you ask yourself, what is the what's the purpose of a city? Or what is the purpose of a house? In a very meaningful way, the purpose of a city and the purpose of a house are very similar. They protect you from the elements. So when it's cold, they keep you warm. Um, When it's raining, they keep you dry. When there are threats, they keep you safe. And cities do the same thing. They they, uh, help you do that more efficiently. They, you know, allow people to congregate and... um, collectively bargain with one another and collectively defend uh, against um, invading threats, be that animals or, or um, uh, you know, other people. Um, but those, those cities, there is the purpose in some meaningful way is, is to help us survive and thrive. And plants and animals do this really well. Uh, as do humans. It's, you know, some of our most basic instincts point to this, this drive to survive. The way that we've been designing cities has been very uh, driven by looking at ourselves and our our desire for power and not looking at biology in a broader sense and designing cities or social structures based on other systems that already work in nature. So, you know, an example of biomimicry is designing underwater self-propelled submarines using the fins the fin movement of a uh, of a penguin hmm. it is using the microscopic view of a lizard's uh, feet to design suction cups it is hmm. um, looking at you know the way that a grain is designed and carried in the wind to help design other other human instruments that uh, are meant to carry or uh, manipulate the wind. It is the Japanese bullet train that is designed after several different types of birds for aerodynamics. Mm -hmm. So instead of just guessing on what is aerodynamically the best and going through iteration after iteration, um, you know, the folks that designed the the Japanese uh, high-speed maglev trains, they decided instead they would look at um, all these different birds 
and essentially allow themselves to to mirror or mimic the design of those birds. And it turns out that's the most aerodynamically efficient design possible. And if people are interested in this concept, obviously Googling it gets you there. There's the Biomimicry Institute that's at biomimicry.org. The woman who's in charge of it has written a book. Uh, there's, there's a lot of really great examples. So that's what biomimicry is. And, and I think for us, the question is, what what structures in nature allow us to better design cities and the and the answer is if you and and this is not necessarily my idea if you look at uh, again this uh, this wonderful book uh, scale by Jeffrey West you look at systems and what is both most the most efficient and the most secure and the most likely to to end in a thriving uh, organism is that you increase levels of fractality of complex systems, and that's these branching networks. It's it's the tree structure or the neural structure of your brain. And in a lot of places, if you look at uh, road networks or the subway networks in Japan, for example, mm-hmm. you actually get some of this. But it ha- it wasn't intentional. We just we sort of intuited that this was this was like a good way to go. But if we're more purposed in that, if we are if we decide in a more purposed way that we're going to design cities, uh, both the infrastructure and the social structure in a fractal way, then you end up with a much more resilient city that, again, integrates nature in a more distributed fashion. Um, and, and you're, again, not stuck in the middle of an urban jungle four and a half hours away from, uh, from the wilderness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we all know too that that nature plays really a large role in the mental health of urban residents. And do you think biomimicry can impact this in a positive way? Absolutely. I mean, I think there's no question that the way that cities are designed today, uh, they were not designed with that truth in mind. They were designed to be the most efficient thing possible. And centralization is extremely efficient. And that's the way the electric grid was designed. We generate all this power in a centralized place and then distribute it across long distances. And cities are designed the same way. They're very centralized. And they're they're efficient, but they are not resilient. And I think this goes to our mental health is urban – you look at uh, urban youth who don't have the opportunity to leave the city and truly experience nature, to see the stars, mm-hmm. for example – and you absolutely see a disconnect between that person and the world, the larger picture, you know, the purpose of their lives. And if you if you design cities to be more distributed and to have greater access to nature, not just parks, which are, are wonderful, but to have access to unadulterated nature, um, you really have, I think, a, a greater impact on on the mental mental health of individuals to really be more resilient um, mentally to to whatever may come. Yeah, I think that kind of goes right into my next question too, which is about cities and how they're designed now, which is without much use of biomimicry. So what impact do you think that will have on our future if we continue designing our cities in that way? Yeah, you know, this is a an open question, I, I think. I, you know, I, mm-hmm. I guess my, my, my sense is, Obviously, it's going to be it's going to be better. You know, the the picture of what exactly this is going to look like, it's an open question because there are there's obviously lots of nature that we can look at to to design this and and the actual application to the design of our infrastructure is you know up for debate. I have um, I'm pushing for 
a, a large uh, collection of people to come in 2019, we're organizing what's called a, a charrette. And it is a basically a meeting of the minds of, of architects, engineers, biologists, physicists, uh, urban planners, social scientists, political scientists, everybody to come together and really work on this issue. And you can think about it in a couple different different ways. You know, one is how can we how can we help reverse or how can we help engineer the future of cities that always already exist? How can we so that's the first. The second is if we're going to look at building new cities, which you know China is building like a, a new city once a month, I think, or, mm-hmm. or something astounding like that. You know, how can we apply these concepts uh, to new cities? And then the third is, you know, we're we're actually looking at colonizing Mars. How do we incorporate nature into an environment where there is no nature? Because we, you know, as you just said, the the this this is very important. I think at some very basic level, the courtyard is this amazing concept that was intuited in uh, medieval Europe. Uh, You see them uh, in Paris today. If you go to most apartment buildings there, those apartment buildings have courtyards. For me personally, I I think that that is a really good place to start. You have a a common space where, you know, you you say you have, you know, 80 residents or so living in a four or five story building and you have a, a central courtyard and it's this public space where people can come together and and share you know a little slice of nature mm-hmm. um, and then you know using the the principles of fractality you can then say well for every 16 apartment buildings that we have together then we want to put another park uh, together for those for those 16 and once you get up to a certain you know level of density for for those those housing units, then maybe you have a, a slice of of wilderness. And obviously, all this is is place dependent in part, right? I mean, this is going to be different for the Rocky Mountains as it is for you know Kentucky, as it is for um, China, as it is for uh, anywhere in India, uh, as it is for Russia. It's totally place dependent, and that's part of you know part of the trick is looking at, you know, nature and and trying to mimic nature, you know, where you intend to be. You know, I think that the question for for Mars is a little bit more difficult and so we can ask ourselves sort of what is the what's the what is the best place on earth to live and we can try to replicate that sort of as best as possible, I guess. Thanks so much for joining me, Walter. It's been really great speaking with you. Absolutely, Ash. I really appreciate the opportunity to chat with you as well. And if uh, folks want to reach out to us, they can find us on Twitter at TinyCitiesAI. And they can also find us at our website, TinyCity.ai. That's all for this week's episode of the Proxify podcast. I'm Ash Blankenship, your host. I've been speaking with Walter Clapp, the founder and director of Community Adaptation, LLC. As a reminder, the Parksify podcast is funded by patrons. So if you're enjoying the podcast, consider becoming a patron for as little as $1 a month. All funds go directly towards the podcast. You can sign up today by visiting our Patreon page at patreon.com slash Parksify. Our theme music was composed by bensound.com. Thank you for listening. Be sure to subscribe if you haven't already and consider leaving a review on iTunes so more folks can find Parksify. Until next time, keep chasing those public spaces.